Welcome to CMIO Podcast, a show devoted to educating and informing those who are making healthcare easier for others. Whether you're involved with informatics, analytics, or new technologies that make the lives of our practicing clinicians better, this show is for you. My name is Dr. Mark Weissman. I'm a practicing physician and CMIO and the host of CMIO Podcast. And today I have with me Dr. Samit Desai, who is really going to educate us about a successful health information exchange and what that can mean for medicine. And I'm really excited to have this conversation. It's not a topic that I'm an expert on, so I'm thrilled to be speaking with one. So hello, Samit, and welcome to the show. Thanks, Mark. Pleasure to be on. And I would say, by the way, that you are a a valued member of our clinical committee at, at CRISP. So I think you know more than you think. All right. <laughs> Thank you. I, I try to fake it well. No. So if you would tell us a little bit about your journey, about becoming a chief medical officer, what you're doing at your current company. I think it's called Audacious Inquiry. That's and right. a little bit about CRISP, if you would, too, because not everyone's going to be familiar with the Maryland Health Information Exchange. So, yeah, I don't know. That's a lot to go over. We'll start it. Just tell us about you first. No, we'll I do it there. often. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm an ER doc. And uh-huh. uh, not like a lot of us who've gotten come this way, you, know, you find yourselves trying to improve systems. You invariably start working with uh, your hospital's IT department. And, you know, that work began around the time that the stimulus was passed. And so... I took a little primer course on informatics at Hopkins. They have a, a little school of informatics there while I continued to be an ER doctor. And one thing led to another. There's actually a good serendipity story there that I won't bore you with, but I moved on to becoming the CMIO of a St. Agnes Hospital, which is here in Maryland. It's part of a Ascension Health, if you're familiar with that yeah. uh, integrated delivery network. And Really, when Maryland, for those that you know, that may know, Maryland uh, has a waiver with CMS. They've had it for decades, and allowing them to set their own hospital rates, and and it became not worth CMS's while. The expense in Maryland was just too high, and so, long story short, they recrafted the waiver in the image of the ACA, Obamacare, and overnight, really, these hospitals uh, were subject to global budgets. They were essentially capped, and so. And, I show, and Mark, you know this well, the boardroom conversations changed. And a lot of the work, as we all know, as CMIO really shifted into population health IT type work. And so I was fortunate enough to be uh, in an environment where the hospital was aligned and much of Maryland healthcare was aligned. And so I found myself working, you know, St. Agnes was kind of on its own, not part of the big health systems. And so we really did need data and relied heavily on our partners at CRISP, uh, which is again, Maryland State HIE. I'll talk more about them here in a second. And got close to the team there. And as they continued to grow and solve more problems, uh, they asked that I come join them and help develop project, pro- products and work on projects. And uh, CRISP has a, a model in which uh, they have uh, valued partners, technology and programmatic. And so one of their main partners, Audacious Inquiry, is the firm that I'm the chief medical officer of. and. So I split my time working on uh, product development at AI as a leader of product and then uh, as a consultant to CRISP in the various initiatives that they've undertaken to support Maryland Healthcare. And I should say, actually, CRISP is, runs this, the HIE for the district and is a partner to the West Virginia HIE. And so growing in size and being more of a regional player has been a, a thing that's happened over the last few years. So maybe a little bit more about CRISP. So there was a, there was a Nice little anecdote there. There's a local retirement community 
here just outside of uh, St. Agnes, uh, just outside of the city of Baltimore. And there was a founder or the owner of that retirement community, John Erickson, who had this basic problem where his residents would leave his retirement community, go one mile down the street to the hospital that I still work at. And the ER docs had nothing, no information, even though he had made real investments in good healthcare IT 15, 20 years ago almost now. And so he funded a pilot with a technology integrator and the team here at AI and some of the early folks that would ultimately run CRISP, and they made it work. And basic information was flowing for uh, these, the senior population. And then he took that pilot, successful pilot, and went to the major stakeholders in the region, Hopkins, MedStar, University of Maryland, and said, hey, folks, we need to do this. This is like a basic care, and we think there's an opportunity to support the region. And so it was born crisp. And over the last 10 years, because of the waiver and because of value-based care and really a, a fantastic leadership team, we've begun solving more and more problems and, and we think have become integral infrastructure for day-to-day care and certainly population health and care coordination. Maybe a word about AI. AI worked with CRISP in those early days and grew with CRISP as it grew. And we were sort of a consulting partner at the time. And that moved on to, to offering services to CRISP, integration services. When you build an HI, you need to make all these connections to hospitals and practices. And around that time, we began to uh, consult with the ONC, the Office of National Coordinator under HHS. And so continue to count them as close partners. And we do a lot of advisory work for them. But the core, the core flagship product of, of AI is, Mark, you know this well, a service that we call the Encounter Notification Service, where in its most simple form, we alert primary care practices, health plans, ACOs, when their patients hit the hospital, whether they're in the ER, get admitted, get discharged. And we've been fortunate enough to, to take that solution nationally in our about 14 states solving care coordination issues. So a lot more there, but I think a, a good start. That's really important stuff, though, because as a primary care provider myself, what I hated it when the family would call me up and saying, how come you haven't intervened in dad's care on the hospital down the street? Because I didn't even know dad was in the hospital and I look silly. So that was in Virginia, not in Maryland. So I, I just I love that we have this capability. Can you give us an example of a successful HIE? I mean, what makes it successful? How do you define that success? And how is patient care better with a health information exchange working in your area? Yeah, that's a great question. So obviously, CRISP, uh, we're very proud of the work we've done, but there are a number of of great examples across the country, and it's probably hard to list them all. But there's some good work happening in Indiana and California, Manifest MedX. The state of New York has funded HIEs quite well, and we see quite a bit of success there. As to what defines success, maybe the most simple (laughs) metric would be use, right? And just like any software product or any service, our folks using it to our practices, ingesting data from the HIE, like encounter information, and acting upon it, bringing more patients in. And so there are a number of success metrics around USIG. We track just how many subscribing organizations there are that want to get these alerts. And in Maryland, there are almost 2,000. It's it's incredible for, for such a small state. Other metrics that we track, CRISP offers a clinical viewer portal where we aggregate data uh, like clinical notes and lab data and radiology data in a central repository and do our best to expose that in uh, workflow-friendly ways in the EMR, uh, but also in ways that we know uh, clinicians would like to see that data. 
And there's a lot of work to do, but we think we've come a long way and we're very proud of that work. But in Maryland, we are almost 50,000 logins to that uh, viewer every week, just a pretty substantial number. And so when we talk about what's defined success, there's uh, use by the healthcare community, and there are more qualitative or, or maybe less tangible measures. Our state partners that often fund HIEs really rely on, on HIEs to help achieve value-based objectives, or the Medicaid department may really fund HIEs to support the health of, of their Medicaid beneficiaries. So a lot of ways to think about a successful HIE, but if it's not getting used, you're probably not making the kind of progress we all like to see. So. I'll make it real. I've got one of my colleagues is a urologist, and we take our hospital takes in uh, from some of the surrounding hospitals as a tertiary center. Yeah. And there's someone who's got kidney stones or some kind of urological thing, that, and the urologist wants to see the film. We can look at in near real time and see any uh, imaging study that is done in the state of Maryland. And my colleagues love that. They use this every day. Now they're starting to look for labs. And no, once they started realizing what's in there, and also it's nice that our PDMP, our prescription monitoring programs yep, in there as yep. well. So there's a lot of good stuff that drives people in there. And so they're starting to explore. And now, well, now there's some claims data that's coming in there. So you can start to get more of that population health feel to it because we've been using it predominantly in more of the acute setting. Hey, why is this patient here in my emergency department and what else did they get down the road? But now we're using it as a population health tool. So this thing really works well. Tell me, how come there's more than one HIE in a region? Sometimes I see like in Pennsylvania, there, there's like six of them or something. Do they compete? Yeah. Is, is HIE, is that the business? How does this work? Yeah, like any uh, company, these are not um, public entities, right? And so mm-hmm. while they're non- nonprofits, they do need to be able to bring in revenue that sustains the core operations. And so maybe to the first question, why might some states have more than one HIE? If you really think about it, the way that HIEs are formed is that good governance um, and relationships such that organizations feel comfortable sharing their clinical data uh, or claims data on the part of plans becomes really critical. And so you need to have the right size and level of an HIE to develop those relationships where everybody can come together. And so, you know, Maryland's a smaller state, and that I think has allowed us for some natural uh, statewide level HIE activity. Um, and allows us to do a lot more. For some of the larger states, like a California, for example, it's just like a nation state, and it's hard to get the kind of governance in place that gives organizations the comfort to share data. But one of our partner HIEs, Manifest Medics, is I think making some inroads and thinking big about how they could support a statewide HIE. So it's different state to state, culture of the state, They're, uh, the level that the state wants to invest in these kinds of efforts and whether they want to really make a designation with one entity or really allow population centers and HIEs to support those centers and sort of have a competition for who can do the best job. As far as like, do HIEs compete? You do see sometimes around the edges when one HIE is serving a particular catchment and it begins to butt up against another HIE's catchment. But the community is largely a collaborative one, and we have a trade association ourselves, <laughs> like okay. every uh, every entity. And so it's mostly a friendly thing, and we're trying to strive toward the same objectives. So, I'm thinking as an end user mm-hmm. that 
one HIE would be enough for me. I don't want to have to go into yes. multiple HIEs. Yes, sure. If I'm a large health system that has hospitals spread throughout a region, I would want hopefully one HIE to have to interact with, not multiple, but yet I see that you seem to need to, even in our area, well, we're close to the Delaware line, so you know what, now we got to connect to the Delaware HIE, and then Maryland's got theirs, and they're very different. Is there a national HIE? (laughs) Yeah, that's a great question. Well, for starters, the HIEs themselves do participate in a network that connects them. That's called the patient-centered data home, and it's largely around encounter alerting right now, but I think their um, ambition is to, is to have more forms of clinical data course through those networks. So, so there is some work and understanding that these networks, HIE networks, do need to communicate with one another. But to your broader point, yes, there are a few that are national level and scale that I'm sure folks listening to the podcast have some familiarity with. The oldest of which is uh, what's called the eHealth Exchange, which was named something different about a decade ago when it was forged out of the federal government. It was really meant to support the VA and DOD and those entities and eventually spun out to a, a private operation. You may have heard of the National Health Information Network or the NHIN or the mm-hmm. Nationwide Health Information Network. Mm-hmm. And so the eHealth Exchange now has a pretty significant participation across the country. Mainly, again, federal partners are, are contributing data. A lot of the big health systems and on the hospital side, a little less so on the ambulatory side, but that's changing. So that's one major network that really is a decade long in the making and finally really starting to deliver a ton of value. There are a couple of others that have come at it differently. Care Quality, which is a provider-led network with pretty good vendor participation. That's the one that Epic really pushed for in the early days. And then the other one is Commonwealth which has largely been sponsored by some of the core vendors like Cerner and Meditech and ECW. And so these are national level scale networks that vendors can participate in, providers and or vendors, and really is going to be, in my view, the way that a lot of these, a lot of the core problem of HIE gets solved, which is I'm a doctor or NP or PA and I need to I need clinical information for my patients, and they were across town or across the country, and I need that information. Only because as successful as CRISP has been, and many other HIEs have been, it's it was probably the case that this notion of querying for uh, a given patient's data from God knows where be solved at this kind of level. And so the other interesting thing that's happening, and it's happened really, is that these networks if you overlay them on the United States, they have intense penetration. And so thankfully, they've uh, worked together such that their agreements align and there's convergence of these networks. And so now, even today, if you're a Cerner hospital and your Cerner, uh, your organization has enabled the connection between Commonwealth, which is again, that Cerner-backed national network, they can then access information across care quality start to get data across the Cerner Epic divide as one chasm to to uh, leap over. And I think a lot of the CMIOs may have increasing experience uh, getting data across those national networks. And so there's a lot of work to be done, to be honest. Organizations uh, can sometimes respond differently when they're queried across these networks. There's great variability in how the data is made available, which still does constrain this end vision of interoperability that so many of us would like to see happen, but meaningful progress is being made. 
And so when we think in the HIE side, we are very much aligned and in close communication with the national networks and their leadership and their governance structures to really, our goal here is to ensure that health systems or rather the healthcare community writ large has the information it needs. And so um, if there are better ways to solve them, that's great. There are plenty of problems to solve in the world and we can sort of attack different issues. Does that make sense? It does. Help me understand, though, how this works a little bit. So I go on vacation to California, and I have to check into a hospital, and I decide to use my middle initial this time. And yet, then when I'm back here home, I check into the hospital, and I don't use my middle initial. Who's matching this up, and how do they do that? Yeah, so there are two paradigms. So in the HIE world, almost every every HIE has what's called a master patient index. And there are vendors out there that have algorithms that uh, can weight different elements of a patient's demographic uh, information um, and effectively create that golden record or that single ID that records can be be matched against. Uh, And there are other solutions out there that take referential data sets and allow for a tighter match. Because as you can imagine, we just can't get the match wrong. We can't match two records that shouldn't be matched given the clinical implications. And so there's like this band where we want to tune these algorithms such that uh, we match as many as we can without really with as, as low a false match rate as possible. So that's what happens at the HIE level. There's a lot of work that goes into that. A lot of the HIE have their ops team and their budget to support that activity. With the national networks, of course, there's no master patient index, right? Well, let me caveat that. The eHealth Exchange and Care Equality, the two of the three that I mentioned earlier, do not have centralized master patient indices. And so the matching really occurs at the nodes. And so if you're a doc and you're going to ask a uh, query another health system for Mark's information. Uh, you'll push across some basic information related to Mark, first name, last name, date of birth, perhaps other elements. And then that node will be responsible for matching. And there are different kinds of algorithms, probabilistic, deterministic. And so the network does rely on effective patient matching at the nodes, which is in some ways a constraint of the system because you're just going to have less effective matching than you'd otherwise have at a more regional HIE level. Commonwealth, one of the big three that I mentioned, does actually have a centralized master patient index. And so patient matching is is less of a concern using that system. So you see a hybrid model of master patient index indices versus not. And while there's another like deep domain here where the federal government is uh, recommended, if you've heard of the TEFCA, Mm -hmm. the Trusted Exchange Framework and Common Agreement that is really meant to foster convergence between these networks. And it's largely happening of its own accord, right? It's happened naturally. But in that model, it calls for uh, qualified health information networks. That could be an HIE, might not be an HIE to develop uh, regional MPIs. So the problem is getting solved a few different ways and uh, continues to be one until we have that uh, universal identifier that we hear talked about so often, uh, but I, still feels I a little do far hear away. about that. Yeah. So I, I hear, do we need it? I mean, it sounds like it's being solved. So why is there such a debate over this thing? I didn't, I don't know much about it other than, gee, it sounds like an HIE is solving this. Yeah. And, and, and again, it is solving for it more effectively, but you're then confined to that region and the data that is, is coursing through that particular health information exchange. And so to the extent that there's an increasing consensus that these national networks are going to be the mechanism through which 
deeper levels of clinical data exchange occur, then the challenges of patient matching will rear their head again as we continue to, as we rely more and more on them. And so certainly a universal patient identifier would go a long way to ensuring that when you Dr. Weissman goes to check on, get information for his new patient, that uh, a fuller set and richer set of data exist. So in some ways there's progress being made and in others, it still feels like we're a little bit ways off. There's some movement happening through Congress about the capacity to even hold a conversation about it, which is you know kind of funny, yeah. uh, but, but that's the first step. And then hopefully that gives way to the, the bigger question. How robust are these HIEs? I mean, I know we have in Maryland, but doctors always complain, look, I can't see what the lab tests are down the street. Yeah. Is that just because they're not pulling in that data? It's hard to match that data up. My CBC doesn't equal with someone else's CBC in terms of names. No one's using link codes or how, how difficult is this? Yeah. So depending on where docs work, some of the HIEs will have made greater headway than others and for a variety of reasons, whether it's the way that they're funded or part of me, Mark thinks that we kind of expect this information to come through, right? We, mm-hmm. we, do, we And it's part of routine care. And I wonder whether that dynamic has led to a world in which hospitals and, and health systems, well, t- two things, hospitals and health systems are maybe unwilling to pay for that query service because they think it should be part of it. And every day that Epic has a care everywhere and they're seeing this data and they're, they're already overwhelmed, right? And so the, mm-hmm. my suspicion is, A, they think it's part of the business and maybe they don't want to pay significantly for querying alone. B, they're starting to get the problem solved through their vendors. And maybe C is, and you can push me here, I really think there's this second data deluge, right? The first was, and it's really over the last 10 years, right? But meaningful use really digitized the data within our own systems, within our own enterprise, right? Mm-hmm. And sometimes we have more than we could ever hope to get through, right? If I'm in the, in the ER, I don't, I can't open every note, can't mm-hmm. view every lab. So I'm already, for many of these patients, overwhelmed. And now we're talking about moving the data effectively across now digitized nodes, and so it's the second wave. And I think docs get to a certain point where once they have enough to tell themselves the story and to understand, at least from the ER perspective, that they move on. They're not searching for more unless they just happen to come across a patient for which there's no information, right? Mm-hmm. And on the ambulatory side, I think it's just a fundamentally different dynamic as well. When you have a new patient, and you can speak to this better than I can, then you're very much like an ER doc and you want to get as much of it as you can to start to lay the foundation for understanding your new patient. But after that, you're not sitting there querying the world, right? Mm-hmm. You may want to know what may have happened between the last time you saw the patient and that discharge summary or any lab data that maybe you didn't order, but you're not looking for it all, right? You don't want the longitudinal record at that point. Maybe I'm wrong, yeah, but that's my understanding. And so- Isn't this where artificial intelligence should be helping us to some degree here, curating the important information based upon yeah. what I have used oh. in the past? Are we getting there or is that like a pipe? Yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> I mean, there's certainly a lot of vendors out there that are offering artificial intelligence solutions. I think so. I think that you're starting to see, well, I would say this, certainly at CRISP, we are starting to think about how we can display data more intelligently and more thoughtfully in the form of problem-oriented views, right? And you've been a part of that conversation. We haven't really dove into the notion of getting some AI or, or narrow ML vendor, but we talk about it here and there. But I do think that 
these national networks will be the substrate upon which these vendors can apply their algorithms with, of course, a provider organization in tow, right? They don't just have carte blanche to access these networks. Mm -hmm. But you can begin to see, I think, some experimentation atop them. So I haven't seen a lot of it, but I think the time is ripe because of this second deluge that's coming. And we think we spend some time at AI thinking about how, and AI audacious think we're not, not artificial intelligence, right. but about how we can um, start to apply very narrow algorithms to the data that we're aggregating and coursing through our systems to provide insight. And some of it, Mark, it doesn't have to be solving every problem that doctors solve, right? In, in the way that we think about diagnostics or treatment decisions, it can be very narrow things. I often joke, like right now, if you get a, a document across these national networks, if uh, for those of you that have experience, it might just say summary of care. And in it are dozens of pages, which may represent discharge summaries or consult notes. And wouldn't it make sense if we um, applied a narrow ML algorithm that said, you know, this thing says summary of care, but really what's in it is a discharge summary or a cardiologist's consult note, right? And now you're beginning to like really guide the user to the types of content they may be proactively seeking or that they may not have been proactively seeking, but now um, if they knew that that information existed, would be really valuable, right? So we're not solving for human intelligence there, but we are providing a much richer navigation experience so they can get to the data they need. Yeah, so I think it. in those ways... Um, excited to bring those kinds of products forward. So one one of my, I guess, pet peeves or, or rants is that having the data in the HIE doesn't solve one of my problems, which is I need the data in my EMR, or do I? I guess we could challenge that. But uh, if I want to make a pretty graph, I, or if I want to compare the creatinine from two weeks ago at Hopkins yeah. to where it's at in my hospital, I got to bring it in to be able to use my vendor's tools. So is that the right answer? Is that we're going to be, should we be able to bring data in from the HIE or should the HIE be that repository and we put data visualization capabilities on top of the HIE and then I don't need it in my EMR? What's the right answer? Yeah, I know that's a great question. So Mark, you get to, I think, experience. So crisp. Well, I think one of the things we're most proud of over the last couple of years is we developed a smart on fire app right? Mm -hmm. And that can live, I think it does now live in every Epic hospital in the state. And uh, we finally got it uh, going with Cerner. And so we anticipate broad adoption across that community. And we've done so with Athena Health. And so to the extent that the smart on fire paradigm is successful in allowing vendors, no matter what they're trying to solve, integrate with these systems more elegantly, right? have a pane mm -hmm. of glass, if you will, within the wireframes of the EMR. We've done that, and I think done so to, to great um, success. And so there's that element of getting into the workflow, and it allows us to show our integrated data and control a little bit of the UI. There is a next level, of course, I think that you're referencing, which is all right, that, great that you had a portal, great that you're now in my view, but you know we really want to see that data alongside the data that lives within our systems. We're not there yet. Part of it is that the encoding of data that comes through our sources still has some, we have some work to do there, right? One of our, this year's goals is to get all the labs loink encoded from our sources, right? And so when that, mm -hmm. when that happens, you can begin to push that data more centrally to the EMR and, and have it be viewed alongside other lab data, for example. You know, Epic kind of does this well with something they call Happy Together, right? I don't know if you're familiar where oh, sure. you can take the care everywhere data and, and there's a mapping exercise that needs to occur because there's still local codes even across Epic as we know. But that 
increasingly that problem will start to get solved. And so the question is, um, will it get solved across the national networks and not just care everywhere? So I think a slow go, what you, what you say is, I think, the, the end division. We're not in love with portals. And if, if the pieces come into place and coding of data, the EMRs having the capabilities, I think we're happy for the data to live in, in those source systems. CMIOs are starting to invest into these machine learning algorithms. And if they identify that a patient is homeless, that could have a huge impact on a predictive score. But if that's in the HIE and my system doesn't know it locally, we're at a disadvantage. And so I can't wait for that day where we can truly get the data in or let the HIE provide the predictive algorithm, if you've guys got the data, and just pump to us the score. That could be an interesting option too. Yeah, no, that's uh, it's a great point. We, at least at CRISP, I can speak for CRISP on this front, we're sort of supportive of both approaches. We do work with vendors that for at the state level, for example, will apply these sorts of algorithms to solve specific questions that the state with its population health objective goals seek. But otherwise, we really do want to enable the ecosystem. And so we are happy to push these data to the source systems. And maybe it's not going to elegantly live within the user interface, right? Like we just talked about. Mm -hmm. But if your organizations can ingest it into um, data warehouses, et cetera, we're happy to do that and allow you all to run the algorithms as you see fit, solve the problems that you want to solve. So we do both now and um, happy to do more if you've got ideas. So there are some startups out there that I'm hearing about uh, where they're aggregating data now, but at the patient level, rather than an independent or state or provider uh, Mm -hmm. related HIE. So the patient should have their complete medical history because they're always going to be at the point of care. They're there. And so if they have the history, whether that's in their phone or on a jump drive or whatever in the cloud, mm-hmm. does that complement what the HIE does? Does it compete with the HIE? How does that play together? Yeah, I mean, I would, I mean, I would say we think that that is mostly complementary. We, we haven't really been certainly a crisp in uh, the business of making a portal available to patients, really for a number of reasons. One of which is just managing identity and, and those kinds of problems you run into. So, and we have long been asked, as you might imagine to deliver this data in more patient-friendly ways. And so there have been some simple ways in which we do that, which is we make our data available through Epic, and Epic, Epic's MyChart can actually surface CRISP data uh, if that's something that the organization desires. I don't believe we're actually doing that yet, but something that could be done. The other way is we, we are starting to, and there's a lot of work here, Mark, in, in ensuring that our participation agreements with our data senders right, reflect the fact that we may make this data available to patients through these applications they feel they want to access this data, through which they want to access this data, right? Mm-hmm. And so we are hoping this year to go through that. We are actively going through this process to amend our agreements. And we've identified a few pilot vendors that when they obtain patient consent and can prove that consent, can then hit CRISP systems and get a download of that patient data and then surface that within their systems for whatever purpose that patient is authorized. So, no, we see it as complementary. We're not, again, in that business of of aggregating for uh, patient viewing. And so we're happy to slowly start supporting that in ways that has been more aspirational in the past for us. 
I'm not sure I entirely understand why, but my colleagues are terrified of this transparency thing. <laughs> <laughs> Having patients know what's in the chart is like. Uh, is it's like the whole bit. open notes conversation, right? Yeah, um, yeah. It's really the same thing. And uh, yeah, it feels like the cat's out of the bag. Uh, with that. It really does. <laughs> so this has been a great conversation. I really appreciate it. It's educated me uh, more about HIEs than, than I've known in the past. So thank you. I know my colleagues, it's not something we get taught about. It's not like, hey, there's the HIE course that you're going to go take and understand all about HIE. So this has been really Yeah, maybe useful. if I can, can I make one more point on that? I, yes, um, please. I agree completely. And I think large, a lot of that's just a function of whether as a CMIO, you operate in a region where there's been one that's effective, right? And that you can sit on the clinical committees and inform the roadmap. And so I think there's a lot of, a lot of that as an explanation. But it does feel to me as these national networks grow that the CMI community is optimally positioned to really push that set of work forward. And I think it could use the community's support. And you're starting to see this, whether HIMS happens or not, I guess this might be produced after. Uh, uh -huh. The AMDIS forum that predates that, there are some topics around interoperability that I think will reference national network work. And I think if we mobilized, as we sometimes do, to, to pushing our vendors to make this data available with more consistently and more robustly, I think we can really accelerate really our, our objectives around clinical viewing. So maybe something agree. we can get going on the AMDIS listserv or yeah. you know, through some other form. But yeah, agree. This has been great. If people wanted to reach out to you yep. to learn more or understand yeah, about maybe if they're in Maryland, how they could sit on the, uh, one of the CRISP committees, how do they reach you? Yep. Maybe the, the best way to reach me is S Desai. So first initial S, last name Desai, D-E-S-A-I at AINQ.com. That's uh, AINQ.com. And uh, yeah, welcome the outreach and look forward to working with you some more, Mark. Thank you. Appreciate it. That's our show for today. Thank you for listening to CMIO Podcast. I've been your host, Mark Weissman. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn or email me at cmiopodcast at gmail.com or go to the website at cmiopodcast.com. Send me your ideas for shows, guests you'd like to hear from, general feedback, or just to connect. And I look forward to bringing you our next episode.